story makers. So first of all, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, so thrilling to have you here. I have to say that, um, so we met briefly at the AWP conference and I actually had come in late to the panel and I thought this guy's really smart. And I, and I kind of dared myself. You were actually the first person I asked you and Anna March <laughs> were sitting next to each other. And I just said, just go up and ask, just go up. You know what it is? And it was a panel about, well, I want to say about rejection, but no, about, you know, uh, pitching and submission, right? So, initiative, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I thought, yeah. I've just got to do it. And I did. And, and then and, and you and you and Anna March both said yes, which was thrilling. But then as I went further into researching you, I just thought, oh, my gosh, I like really lucked into this. Suddenly realized how audacious you were. And as Angie yeah. started researching, she was like, how did you get him? <laughs> and we uh, and don't, every don't undersell us. Though. Yeah, no way. <laughs> it is indeed a privilege to be <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was, you know, and and then it was like, you know, I, like I, so I read your novel, and I'm reading your some of your nonfiction, and um, and then I I was looking at poetry, and I just put your name in, and like of course of course you're a poet as well, and then Angie was looking, it was like I found him on the Colbert Report. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, the formal uh, bio is, <laughs> that's the informal bio. Um, <laughs> Tobias Seem is an associate professor at Emerson College, where he directs the MFA program in creative writing. He's also the executive editor of The Crisis Magazine, a preeminent journal of politics, ideas, and culture published by the NAACP and founded by W.E.B. Dubois in 1910. He is the author of 12 books, including The N-Word, Who Can Say It, Who Shouldn't, and Why, What Obama Means for Our Culture, Our Politics, Our Future, A Taste of Honey, Stories, and the only one without a subtitle, the novel <laughs> Only the Strong. Uh, and he has, uh, his books for children include Whose Toes Are Those, 50 Cents and a Dream, and Preaching to the Chickens, which is forthcoming in October. His reviews, essays, and cultural criticism have been published in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the Los Angeles Times, The Village Voice, the Boston Globe, Publishers Weekly, the Washington Post, and Essence Magazine, among others. And his honors include a Guggenheim Fellowship for Creative Arts, the Carter G. Woodson Award from the National Council for the, for the Social Studies, a Jefferson Cup honor from the Virginia Library Association, and two Dublin's double NAACP Image Award nominations. And I will just add to that that you have five children. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and a wife, very important. Yes. Who yes. I know? Well, that was the, the first clue. I noticed that you were dedicating more than one book to your wife. And then I got to the fact that you had five children. I said, ah, oh, that's why he's dedicating more than yeah. one book. Yeah, I'm no dummy. <laughs> so let's just start with, how do you find the time? Well, um, I, well, one thing I should point out is that our children are big now. Our youngest child is 15. So the mm. uh, last thing he wants to do is actually be bothered with his father. So I have a lot of uh, a lot of time. But uh, I guess I do a, I do a lot of writing. Um, uh, sort of in my head, you know, just kind of thinking about things once I get started. And then when I have an opportunity to sit at the keyboard, you know, I, I'm, I'm able to get some significant work done. And, um, you know, I commute to work. I don't drive. So I'm on the commuter rail. And I've done this my whole career. I've taken the commuter rail everywhere I've, I've lived. And, uh, you know, I take a legal pad. And so I do a lot of writing on trains. I love to do that, actually. So that's, that's really helpful for me. 
do you still handwrite, even though you could probably at this point have a right? I mean, you certainly have a computer, whether you can have Wi-Fi. Yeah, so, sometimes I will work from a laptop while while on the train, but I don't like to carry a laptop because I'm lazy and <laughs> light, as lightweight as they are. I mean, I have a MacBook Air. It's still too heavy for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and the legal pad like weighs nothing. So. Yeah. So I'm really comfortable with that. And then when I get where I'm going, I will, you know, transfer the material from the tablet, uh, you know, to my computer. Yeah. And that's actually a good part of the writing process, I think, because you have your raw draft and then you're kind of starting to edit and see what's going on. Definitely. Yeah. 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 There's also a physicality there. Um, the writing by hand. Yeah. yeah I, I do it, too. I do it, too. <laughs> yeah. When I first started, I had real, I mean, it's years ago, of course, I had real trouble composing at the computer mm. um, and it's something I developed over time I'm actually pretty comfortable with it now but at the beginning I wouldn't do it I had to write everything out yeah is there a difference across genres in terms of this sort of logistical writing stuff but also in terms of how you how you start how you how you face a project I often start in the middle I think you know it's like I'm working on a play right now and before I had a plot, before I had the characters, I had the dialogue. You know, some dialogue started coming to me. So I just wrote the dialogue down and, and I continued to do that until some kind of shape began to emerge from it, you know, in terms of, well, whose mouth can I put this dialogue in? Mm -hmm. What situation can I then put that particular character in? And it kind of goes from there as opposed to, I'm gonna start with four characters in a room. That comes later. Did you yeah. know it was a play? Yeah, I did know it was, was a play, yeah from the beginning. I feel like, you know, this day and age, a lot of people are sort of encouraged to master a, a, a niche of a kind. Sure. And, and um, I really appreciate the breadth of genres that you take on and succeed in. And um, do you ever feel professional pressure to stay within a category or to make sure you're going back to a category with a certain amount of regularity? Well, I think uh, publishers and pro probably my agent too. Uh, they like it when you when you have uh, sort of big market books, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so uh, so there, it's not pressure, but it's encouragement. You know, to take on these high concept books or to write a novel. You know, mm -hmm. anytime you're, you're writing a novel, there's there's great interest in that. Um, but I'm not sure if one genre would hold my interest because I don't have a great attention span. I'm not that guy. Yeah. Uh, so I so I almost have to kind of move around. Uh, number one, to, to uh, meet the demands of my own imagination. And then also, I have to say uh, that when I started, you know, I, I started, I was, a, I was a young father. Our, our oldest child will be uh, 33 this year. Wow. Uh, and so there was there was immediately, okay, I'm going to be a writer, but I also have to feed my family, right? So I thought, you know, I said to my wife, I'm going to work in all the genres and whatever hits, because something's going to hit, <laughs> uh, you know, then I, I will pursue that. And so journalism was probably the last thing that I was interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I wrote my first story years ago, I sold it to this weekly in St. Louis where I was living. I sold it for $35. And I was like, wow, <laughs> let me see how fast I can write another one of these, right? And that's, and that's really how I got into journalism. You know, it was, just, it was a matter of practicality more than anything else. Mm -hmm. I, it is so, it does seem so practical. I, I, I left college and I realized if I wanted to write, I should have studied journalism because, you know, that's where you actually have jobs. Or we used, at least when I graduated college, I don't know if well, that's true. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, uh, I avoided journalism. I was an English major and I avoided journalism. Um, right. And, uh, but, you know, I, 
once I sold that story, I became a convert. I was yeah. like, newspaper's not so bad. Let me see what I can do here. Yeah. Now, you talk about having a, a, a small attention span, but, you know, uh, The N-Word is, is a deeply researched book. Yes. And I, I almost I almost thought maybe it was a, a dissertation. I mean, it's imminently readable as well. But um, yeah. so how do you kind of how do you balance that research with well, holding your own attention? Yeah, well, that, that's a good question. I worked on that book for six or seven years. Uh, so it was, it was a long term uh, project, and I think one way I was able to stay interested in it is that I was doing a lot of other things at the same time. So like for part of it, uh, I was writing a, a weekly review for the Washington Post, and I was an editor there, so I had to do that. And then for another part of it, I was writing a syndicated column on politics and popular culture for the Washington Post. Uh, so I always kind of had something else going on. And then toward the the end of working on it, when I was really putting the chapters together, I began to write the stories. Uh, that became a taste of honey. That, that collection. So I would I would work on the N word. I took six months off from my job, and I would work on the N word, um, maybe from like um, eight eight a.m. to like noon. Then I would take a break, and then I would write fiction uh, in the evening. So again, a, um, sort of a restless attention span. You know, I, I do have to to move around a lot to to stay involved. Well, it's wonderful how you've harnessed that to be yeah. so so productive. Uh, it's working out for me. <laughs> so my question about the N-word is um, there are subject matters that I want to write about, but that I see so differently than how they're being talked about. And that, yeah. frankly, like I'm kind of angry about. And so I, I end up not quite knowing how to go in and write about it in a cogent, effective way without my anger uh, interfering. And as I was reading the N-word, I thought that Perhaps that might have been something you had to grapple with. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that. There was a tension there, but it, it actually was sort of in the, the opposite direction. I, I really wanted to be really noncommittal. I wanted to yeah. just kind of investigate and follow wherever the trail led me. And my editor, who's a terrific editor, uh, kept pushing me. I want you to be more polemical. I want you to argue more. You know, And I was like, God, can't we just lay everything out on the table? And, you know, because as a reader... I don't really like those books where you tell me how to think and how to behave, you know. So for me, it was a fine line. I mean, I, I do make some suggestions in there, uh, but I was under pressure to make those suggestions. I really kind of wanted to just, here's a cultural history of the word. There you have it. Thanks. Good night. You know, <laughs> but so. even that, the, the, the fact of that history, I mean, the you know, there were things that I felt like, well, one, you know, I have an eight and a nine-year-old. We have, we have an eight and a nine-year-old. And I thought, I, I want them to be learning this history of America. And this isn't the history that we're taught. I mean, I grew up in the public schools of Berkeley in the 70s. And I mean, I was being taught, you know, it was interesting because one school is called Malcolm X and another school is called Jefferson, right? I mean... <laughs> This is where I grew up in, like, the integrating yeah. uh, Berkeley. And um, anyway, so I just, I guess I just, you know, even the fact of the history, you know, having, I don't know, having to tell a history that, that should be being taught. That yeah. Didn't bug well, you? I th- <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I think of it as a, I think of a lot of the work that, uh, you know, African-American writers do and women writers do and, and writers of color is counter-narrative work. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's this dominant narrative or the master narrative as, as Toni Morrison calls it, and, you know, as she defines the master narrative, it's, it's not about race, it's about power, right? So it's like whoever is in power imposes this story on the rest of us, and that includes our origins, uh, how, we, how we got to be here, what we're capable of, what our limitations are. 
Um, and so I think that this this other kind of writing that um, that women do, uh, that gay people do, that that people of color do, it's, it's a counter narrative. So it's like, okay, we know this is what you've been told about us. Let me offer some more information, right? So so yeah, there is there is this oppositional aspect, I think, to the work. Yeah, yeah. Well, you do it beautifully. It's Thank you. <laughs> Well, um, I have to say, I was reading a, a an interview that your son did with you, um, and I have to confess, I don't, I didn't, wasn't sure how to pronounce his name. Was it Jira? Okay, Jira. then I was right. Okay, so Jira. <laughs> um, and I loved. You know, there's a conversation that you guys had, sort of about this topic about art and the polemic, and you know, you basically say, "I'd rather tell a great story to start with, and then write an op-ed piece to do the political work." And yeah. um, I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. And, sure, sure. Yeah. It's interesting you should say that because uh, I just read a couple of uh, science fiction stories by W. B. Du-, du Bois, and you know, one of the things that critics say about his fiction is fiction is often maligned because he did all this amazing superheroic research, right? Nonfiction work, and so you know, people say, well, he, he in his fiction he tends to be didactic, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so there's much to like in his fiction. Uh, a short story of his was recently discovered uh, or rediscovered. It was a science fiction story called Princess Steel. These two uh, women scholars discovered it in the archives at uh, UMass Amherst. And uh, I read it because uh, I was writing a piece about it for the Crisis magazine. And, you know, it does have those elements of didacticism in there. Uh, and it seems like, it's almost like uh, Du Bois couldn't avoid it. And he had written this famous essay called Criteria for Negro Art, in which he argued that all African-American art should be overtly propagandistic, right? Should uh, be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, should be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, it. unfortunately, that's not a good formula for writing fiction, you know, even though there's much to admire uh, in there. Uh, so I, I believe very strongly that, uh, you know, the, the story is the thing. You serve the story. And the story brings out certain ideas or leads me to certain uh, conclusions as the reader. That's great. But I, I'd much rather feel that I'm discovering those truths for myself rather than you saying, this is what you need to know. This is what you need to do. And some readers don't mind that. Some readers don't mind that. Uh, but, you know, the, the reader that I am is averse to that. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd almost rather you be sly and subversive and sneak some knowledge on me, you know, read your story and go, that was a great story. Oh, yes, she did say that in there, didn't she? Okay, you know, so then I, I feel like I discovered it myself. Yeah. Right? It's like the kale in the milkshake. That's what she wants. Yeah. Kale in the milkshake. That's a wonderful analogy. <laughs> now, I heard you say on a podcast that there, you think you have three readers that you keep in mind. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. that when you talk about that? Yeah, I talk about that a lot in my my creative writing class. One reader is, is obviously me, you know, with my my appetites, my my inclinations. Another reader uh, is more of just an enthusiastic reader, not necessarily interested in my topic, but just likes to read certain. And to a certain extent, I'm that kind of reader too. I'll read a book on on needlepoint. Uh, I'm not interested in needlepoint, but if it's a wonderful story, I will follow it all the way through to the end. And the third reader is the reader who's really kind of um, hostile or indifferent, actively indifferent to uh, my kind of writing for whatever reason. Uh, and I aim for all of those readers. Now, I acknowledge from the beginning that last type of reader I'm least likely to get. I may not get many of them, but I go for them too. I, don't, I try to uh, include everybody in the tent. I want to say everyone's welcome. 
You don't all have to stay. I understand that you're you're not all going to stay. But uh, the example that I give is um, when I was in college uh, and uh, pretentious young man with literary aspirations, uh, we all read Esquire magazine because we thought, you know, it was one of those things we needed to read. And there was a lot of good writing in it at the time. But they had this one column by uh, Jim Harrison who recently passed away. And uh, he wrote this column for it called uh, The Raw and the Cooked. And in that column, he and his wife would essentially go out, kill an animal, field dress it, prepare it, and eat it enthusiastically. <laughs> right? Okay. Now, I've been a vegetarian for over 30 years, so I have absolutely no interest in any of those things. But his column was the first thing I read every issue mm-hmm. because I so loved his writing. I loved the way he told a story. And it taught me this is possible. You know, he's he's got me reading about hunting and, and gutting animals and eating them and I've got absolutely no interest in that, but I can't wait to see what he does in the next issue because he just wrote so amazingly. So that told me it is possible. You know, you can get that reader and you shouldn't automatically assume that you're not. I was going to say, do you use those readers like in the process of story development, in the process of revision? Uh, how do you hold those sort of... Uh avatars in, in relationship uh, to your process? Sure. I call it anticipating the argument, particularly in, in nonfiction. Uh, when I'm writing, like when I was writing the N-word, for example, I kept imagining a reader saying, but what about this? Mm-hmm. Oh, what about that? Well, I think this. And so I kind of wanted to address that as, as I was going along and, and not necessarily overtly. Like uh, there's a term for it. I can't think of what it is, but um, uh, Barack Obama does it in his speeches a lot. He he's kind of sets up the straw man. He says, they will tell you that marriage equality is a bad thing, and they will tell you. And then he sort of demolishes the argument. Mm-hmm. I don't do it that way, but I do kind of work it in. You know, I, I, In my mind, I'm doing it in a more subtle fashion, but I'm trying to introduce uh, the counter arguments and then kind of exposing their flaws as I go along. Less overtly in fiction, you know, but it, it, I do think about it a lot with nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Will you talk about your planning process? I mean, how you, I, I heard you say another, in another podcast, or perhaps the same one, I heard you say that you know the end first, or you start with the end. Mm-hmm. Can you, can you yeah. talk about your creative process? Yeah, sure. Usually, I mean, I'm not, I'm not working to discover what the end is when I begin, but I'm confident that it will uh, emerge fairly quickly for me. I kind of know where things are going to, to end up. And, um, you know, Tony Morrison has advised, know your ending and, and write to it. And it can it can help you uh, shape the story. You don't go off on these tangents that are going to take you away from where you want to end up. And it's only the strong, for example, in that novel. I knew that there were particular characters I wanted in a room at the end of it. Mm. Right. So as I wrote, I was like, I, I got to keep moving them toward this eventual meeting. Right. Uh, so I, I think it's helpful uh, in that way. And, uh, um, you know, there, I know there's a, another school of thought that says, you know, you, you don't know what the ending is. You just kind of follow the characters. And I totally respect that. Uh, but I was influenced by, I did a conversation at a library with Edward P. Jones one time mm-hmm. and someone was saying, well, you know, uh, you listen to your characters and they kind of tell you where they're going to go. And he just scoffed and he said, nope, I'm God. I am God. I know who's going to live, who's going to die. I know that already. And I, and that, and that that kind of uh, influenced me. Now, I am willing to listen to characters, though, when they decide that the narrative that I anticipate for them is not the narrative for them. And that certainly happened in, in uh, the stories. There was a character that I expected to not be alive at the end of the book. Who was? Because, <laughs> you know, the, somehow the character steered me in a different direction. 
and um, and only the strong one of the characters that has a large part of Ananias Good, the uh, the gangster. Yeah. Um, in my envisioning of the novel, he had a much smaller part, mm-hmm. but he kept kept interrupting the other <laughs> stories. And finally, I said to my wife, I said, I've decided, you know, the three sections. I've decided who each section is, you know, who's going to be the featured character in each of those sections. But Ananias Good, he's so rude and, and so stubborn. And so I said there, I said, I, gotta, I have to pause and I have to figure out a way to make him work in each mm. of these sections in a way that he'll accept and leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and he does. And did you know the order of those sections? Did you write them in order? I did write them in order uh, for the most part. But once I had the, the structure, if something came to me that involved the third section, I would stop and write that down, mm-hmm. you know, almost in a stream of consciousness kind of style. And, and you know, with a mental note, when I get to that section, you know, I'll, I'll work that in, particularly with the characters' backstories, you know. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I loved and, it. I and, loved it. And I was sort of curious, do you do... Uh, or what kind of character work do you do ahead of time? Because I was noticing uh, Ananias has these kind of two different relationships where he seems to be the extreme uh, unexpected for both of those relationships. And um, and so did you sort of plan those tensions ahead of time? Or... Um, uh, let me see. Let, let, let me think about that. Uh, um, yeah, actually, I... I I do quite a bit of advance work on the characters. I call it profiling. So I create a profile for each character. It talks about what they like, what they don't like, bad moments they may have had, things they're afraid of, how I think they would, uh, how that, how I think they would behave in a situation that actually turns out not to be in the book. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it can be, it can be very hypothetical. Um, but I, the, I guess the parallel for me was there's, there's guts and there's, there's Ananias. And they sort of fear no man, right? Mm-hmm. They kind of have that, that kind of... So it, what context would soften them or, or show another side of them, sort of challenge this this hardness all the time? And in both of those instances, you know, it came to me, well, it's a woman, and it's a particular kind of woman. A different right? woman for each of them. Yeah. Very yes. different. Yes, yes. The, the characters are so distinct, and um, you mentioned you were writing a play, and I was wondering if you had done or, or were interested in doing any screenplay writing or writing for television, because this novel, it has such, it has not only an omniscience, but it but it cuts. I mean, it, you use these film techniques so that, you know, we cut to another scene, and we're dying to know what happened in the first scene, but the second scene is so exciting, you're also you know, off on the ride of the second scene and you're holding, yeah. right? I mean, and, and, it go, and it goes and it'll follow, like the camera might follow a couple of characters, you know, who the main character is passing and we get a little moment with them. And so it's it's very cinematic. Yeah, I, uh, back, you know, in my early 20s when I was experimenting with every genre to see what would stick, I wrote a number of screenplays. I wrote a number of plays that were actually uh, produced, but I wrote a number of screenplays too. And when I was 28 years old, I uh, went out to Los Angeles for, I guess, like three months with my sample scripts under my arms, knocking on doors, got nowhere, of course. Uh, and so I, I went back home with my tail between my legs and I, I said to uh, my wife, well, it's time to try a different genre. I gave it a shot, mm-hmm. right? And so, I, and so I didn't really return to it, but I think a lot of that, that practice uh, sort of influences you know, other things that I do. Have you had any movie interest in the novel yet? It's funny, I get that question all the time, but no. <laughs> Absolutely none. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's but it's it's waiting there. It's I mean you know, Yeah, but, yeah, it's pretty. But who knows how that'll be ready. 
Yeah, who knows how that whole world works. Right. <laughs> and do you think that's part, part of your attention span? I mean, do, do you find you're just fascinated with all the characters in a world and so you follow them? Are you consciously using that to build to build tension, to move back and forth? Yeah, I am manipulating them very, very deliberately. Um, I, I do a lot of that because um, one of the things that I'm sensitive to as someone who aspires to write uh, literary fiction is, uh, you know, there's so many writers who are comfortable completely disregarding plot. They might write, they, they might have beautiful language, they might have beautiful characters, and I respect them for that. Uh, but again, my attention span, I will say to my wife, you know, the, la- the language in this is lovely. I mean, I totally admire it, but nothing happens. Yeah. Right. And I'll say that was a great character, but mm, nothing happens. And I, I wanted to I wanted to avoid writing fiction where nothing happens. I didn't want people to say, uh, well, you know, your characters are great. The dialogue is good, but nothing happens. So I was very conscious of that. I want I want to keep moving forward to to something resembling a climax. Right. Mm-hmm. So anything that didn't fit or serve that purpose uh, ends up getting cut. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So you're writing it, but you're. But I mean, you're you're. It's that's happening in the editing, then that that. Uh, it's 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 happening very early in the process. Like uh, you know, if I imagine a scene, uh, well, what I'll do is if I imagine a scene, if, if that scene is really compelling to me and I really love it, I will find a way to shape its contours so that it fits into uh, you know the plot, the direction of the plot. If I'm unsuccessful, uh, then it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a random question that sort of circles back around to our. Um, you know, separation of politics and art. And it's actually about the question of theme and kind of where that falls, because I think sometimes people are didactic when they mean to be sort of more theme-based. But what are your thoughts about approaching theme? Um, I I feel like theme's important, but I feel also like it's something that can get uh, awkward or heavy-handed. And so... Yeah, I, I I I believe in theme, but I also want it to be uh, vague to the point of of risking ambiguity, right? I want I want there I wouldn't mind if some some readers are arguing saying no, it was really about this, no, it was really about that. So in my mind, uh, certain themes, I think the themes have to arise organically, even mm-hmm. if even if I'm very fond of them, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so that that's what I'm striving for, um, and and it's really interesting, I think. Uh, when readers interpret what you've what you've written and said, I got this and I got that, and and uh, you know, there's no right or wrong. It's, it's very subjective, and you know, my intention sort of ends at the moment the reader picks up the book and begins to discover it for for themselves. So, but yeah, I I, I believe in theme, but I I really think you know you have to trust the narrative, and and it has to come from that. That's interesting. You know, we spoke with some producers who are very much like. You know, in film, in certain kinds of film, uh, you know, and it might also be a genre moment where you have a very clear theme. I want to know what it's about. I want to be very clear what it's about. And so it's interesting to compare, again, like looking at literary versus, say, if you were doing something that was more of a popular uh, uh, project, if you might consider that differently or the same. Yeah, you might. I mean, that, that's a good question. But I mean, I'm 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 trying as as much as I can to avoid easy categorization. You know, it's yeah. like I have a colleague who she's a literary novelist, and her last novel did pretty well. But everywhere it was reviewed or discussed, it was described as a thriller. Uh-huh. And she says she has no objection to that. She loves being read. She loves the attention. But 
she never realized she was writing a thriller. Mm-hmm. There's a crime in it. There is some violence. But she didn't set out to write a thriller. But people kind of picked up on that and said it's a thriller. For her, it was more about uh, how the family members are affected by this crime as opposed to the crime itself. But she'll take it. Yeah. Because <laughs> she's being read, right? <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's actually the key for most people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you teach, you teach yeah. in, in, in an MFA program that you that you run. What do you think is the what do you think can be taught? What do you think is the sort of is the most teachable element of creative writing? Well, I think a lot of it. Um, well, you know, we do pay a lot of attention to to craft, to the direct manipulation of language, uh, but. I don't know. That that's only part of it for me. I try not to get too mystical mm-hmm. uh, with, with my students, you know. But and so I sort of apologize a lot. I say this is going to sound weird, uh, but one of the things I encourage them to do early on is, you know, what what we want to do in our program is produce publishable work, right? So, uh, you know, there's there's some professors who don't discuss that at all because you know, it's about the process. But but I discuss it. I discuss it a lot. So I say uh, I want you to visualize the book on the shelf. Mm. You know, I want you to actually see it. I want you to see the spine. I want you to see your name on it. You know, I want you to see the after process. And then work backwards, which is actually what I do. You know, I do visualize my, my books as done mm-hmm. because I'm a little obsessed. I'm a completist. I have to finish it if I started it, right? So I start with seeing it done. I mean, I really kind of uh, internalize that idea that it's complete. And then I work to that completion. So, I mean, that's... That's not something that you necessarily have to get from an MFA program, but it's something that I discuss in my classes. You know, it's like that for me. That's part of the process too, because I'm never not writing. It's always something going on here, right? And so when we when we get to the laptop, we we do want to to honor those ideas with our best possible language, right? But there's all this. There's so much more than merely writing the mechanical act of mm-hmm. writing to to get the story right. I love that. I love. I love that. First, the part about it—it you know, it happens in your head. I mean, because yeah. I know I heard Joyce Carol Oates talking about how she goes running or something, and the whole story yeah. is going through her head, and then she sits down to type it, and it's like, I mean, that woman is prolific, you know. But, She's amazing. Yeah. She's amazing. But and, for me, for me, it's like washing dishes. When I wash dishes, it's just really helpful. It's just really helpful. I, I can when I'm done, I can go right to my keyboard and 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 do some things. Yeah, so it's, it's a lot of different processes. I mean, Edward P. Jones, uh, he wrote the Known World. I, I think he wrote it in his head for about ten years. He was editing a tax newsletter. He mm-hmm. did that all day. Didn't have time to actually write, but you know, he was entertaining himself while while he worked. And eventually, he sat down and got it all out. Wow, yeah. amazing, <laughs> right? I mean, that's yeah. Um, how about what what? Uh, any theories or books or or you know teachers that have have influenced you in terms of you know have, have taught you? Um, I guess the most influential teacher for me was in, in college. I had a professor named Leon Forrest, uh, who's now deceased, uh, and he wrote I think four novels. And the buzz about him uh, when I got there because I wasn't really familiar with him was that Tony Morrison was his editor at Random House, mm. right? So I thought, I'm going to pay some attention to this guy. <laughs> um, and then I had this period where I was mostly writing poetry then, right? So uh, that was really my focus. And he was a novelist, but he knew all about poetry. And I would see him, uh, and I would kind of swagger all the time. i said, Professor Forrest, one day I'm going to let you read my poems, but you're not ready for them yet, right? That kind of thing. <laughs> and, so I, and so I would go to his office, and we would talk about books and stuff. But mainly, I just kind of like... I don't know. 
made a fool of myself. But he was very, but he was very patient. And so the story I always tell, I mean, people have heard this story before, but I, I took some of my poems to his office and said, finally, I'm going to lay it on you, dude. Get ready. Your life is about to change, right? And so he reads the first, he reads the first poem. He takes a long time. It's just a really long, awkward moment. Takes, takes off his glasses and cleans them. He looks at the poem again. And finally, he says, go over to the bookshelf, right? So I go over to his bookshelf. And he says, uh, grab that book by Richard Wright. And it was Richard Wright's poetry, right? And so um, I was like, Richard Wright, native son, black boy? What does he know? What does he know about poetry? Well, okay, whatever. So he opens it up. And he shows me this haiku. It's just three lines. It's a haiku about a snowflake landing on a boy's hand, right? Mm. So it's just, a, it's just a handful of words. And it was it was so astronomically better than anything I'd ever written in my life, right? Mm. And I'm just looking at it. It was, it was an epiphany. epiphany. I almost cried. You know, it was like, it was just, wow, you can do that much with, you know, 17 syllables. And so I'm looking at it, and I'd been about six feet tall when I entered his office. <laughs> And you know, I'm getting shorter as I'm standing there. And finally he says to me, he says, uh, do you see, son? Uh, do you see? And I said, yes, sir. You know? <laughs> that was sort of the beginning for me. It's like, okay, I got a lot of work to do before I, before I show this crap to anyone else. <laughs> so he was probably the most influential teacher. That's for amazing. Me. Uh, now, on the flip side of that, I have some incredibly talented students who ha- and, and I will say that the, the two I'm thinking of right now, especially, happen to be two women of color who are brilliant, um, who you know have lived a lot of life, and who are not releasing their work into the world. Or one of them, one of them finally is. But you know, and and I just that's the flip side. So the one side is the yes. people who need to know you've got so much more to do, right? And and there's yes. lots of the, and then there's the other people who need to know go out there and and let it go right yeah. before it's perfect or you know how what do you say to the, that side <laughs> i mean i mean you you really have to push those people because i find that that's very consistent what you're discovering uh that the the students i'm most blown away by are the ones most likely to fold it up and put it back in their bag and say thank you for looking at it and I have to go let's think of a place a home for that piece. And they go, really? Uh, do you think so? And and then there's the other student who says, where can I send this? And you have to say, I wouldn't send it anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've always found that the case, I always said when I was an editor at the Washington Post, in the book review section, we used, you know, mostly freelance writers. And I found, I often found, I would say it's always the case, but it was often the case that the more talented the writer was, the more humble they were about the whole editing process. Mm-hmm. They would say, well, what did you think? Well, should I, do I, should I rewrite it? You know, and I would go, are you kidding? This is brilliant stuff. And then there'd be other people who would like just fight you on every comma, right? And, and you think, man, you're not nearly as ready as you think you are, right? So I, I, I find that to often be the case. I have one friend, uh, Patricia Elam, she published a novel, uh, it's probably been about 15 years, called Breathing Room. And um, she told me that she had attended pretty much every writer's workshop in Washington, D.C. And finally, at some point, one of the teachers said, you know, you've been, you've been going to these workshops a long time. <laughs> it's time to write that novel and get it out in the world. You know, we've all seen pieces of it, put it all together and submit it. And she did, and it was published, and it did well, but she said, if someone hadn't said that to her, she might still be working on it right now. Yeah, you know, yeah. Some, someone needed to say, let's get this out of your hands and show it to the world. <laughs> yes, yes. 
uh, and as an, as having having worked as an editor and also having placed a lot of pieces, j- journalistic pieces and so forth, uh, any advice to folks listening about pitching your work and getting it out there? Uh, I would say, first of all, be really familiar with the publication. What we got all the time when I was an editor at the Washington Post, I get this at the crisis, there are people pitching things and it's clear, um, all advice to the contrary, that they're unfamiliar with the publication. Right, mm-hmm. so uh, so get really familiar with the publication. If you write experimental fiction, and you know the journal publishes mostly conventional, hidebound, stuffy, same old stuff, why would you even send it there? Send it somewhere where you know the editors have an appetite for experimental fiction, um, and kind of get what you're trying to do. Um, you know, and and even if you're not succeeding at it, they understand what you're trying to do from mm-hmm. the beginning, right? So there's the shorthand. Um, you don't have to go through this moment of explanation. I'm doing avant-garde. I'm challenging the form. You know, there are publications that do that regularly. So aim your work at, at those publications. And also, I guess I would say is uh, you really need to be your own harshest critic, I think. You know, um, I tell my students I, I look at their work two different ways. One, I love them. Mm. I'm their mentor. They're wonderful. We have this rapport. We have this chemistry. And I want you to be happy. And I, and I, I want your work to, to succeed. I'm going to read it that way, especially as we develop a relationship over the course of the semester. But I'm also going to remind myself to read it another way. And that is, I don't know you. I don't care about you. Mm. And I have a stack of submissions on my desk. And I resent it. I resent that I've got to go through all these submissions. So I'm looking for any excuse not to read yours. Right? Mm-hmm. So there's that, too. Uh, and I, I, I encourage my students to think about, you know, both of those processes. How, how can I get past that editor? And, you know, I've got a page, maybe two, to really seize their attention and keep it. So and This goes back to your three readers, though, too. Yes, yeah, sort of. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Um, yeah. I want to I just squeeze a few quick questions in because we're really nearing okay. the end. But but children's books. I have a lot of, of students and listeners who are, who are really interested in, in writing children's books. And I will, I will say that um, uh, I got my um, kids, both my eight and my nine-year-old, on my lap to, uh, to read 50 Cents in a Dream because ah. they loved, you know, the pic, the, even though they're not really reading picture books anymore, it was such yeah. a pleasure and, and such a great uh, story of journey. But anyway, any, any advice for folks about writing picture books? Uh, well, I'd say... You know, probably read like a hundred of them mm-hmm. for each project that you attempt. You know what I mean? It's like so many people go into children's books and they haven't really read any children's books. Mm-hmm. And and don't read them casually, but you know, read them very carefully. For example, pay attention to vocabulary, right? Because they're you're not just uh, entertaining with a good story, you're you're building literacy skills. So what are what are appropriate words? What are the words that we find in the type of picture book that I'm trying to write? Um, and you know how it, it, it's about proxies, I think. You know, what are, what are the kind of children's books you're trying to write? Familiarize yourself with those, with those particular kind, and uh, use those as your models. Yeah, yeah. You read yours out loud a lot. A lot, I, but I read I read all my stuff out loud. Yeah. Not just the children's stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good tool. Yeah, con- I'm constantly reading out loud. Uh, earlier in my career, I used to punish my wife by reading everything to her. Poor woman. Um, I don't do that as much now, but at the beginning, I'd say you got to listen to this. You know, 
And she would. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned vocabulary. There's a little board book called A is for Activist. I don't know if you've heard of that book. I have seen that one, yeah. And and it's it's really a wonderful book. And we got it after our kids were past the that age, too. But in terms of um, vocabulary, they definitely have... I think they went outside that rule in that book, but it's 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 um it's interesting because I think it is it's definitely got a specific bent. We're not just learning about letters; we're learning about yeah. bigger concepts. Yeah. So well, that's depend, that's dependent on the editor and the publisher too, yeah. right? Because because yeah. if if that message is important enough to that editor, they will fight to include that language. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 So we usually start, but I was so enthralled with your bio that we didn't we usually start with uh, what are you working on now oh um, my wife and I co-wrote a musical that will be staged on the Boston Common on July 17th wow in Boston it's called the Harry Scary it's based on a African American folktale um, let's see what else do I have going and I, and I have uh, well I think you may have said this I have a collection of poetry coming out in the fall no, in addition I didn't to, to okay it's called sing it like a god and it comes out in September um, and uh, let's see, what else am I working on? Oh, I'm working on the, uh, another play, and I'm working on a novel. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so everyone out there, get to work, people. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I'm just going to sit here and just... Uh... <laughs> it's time for Steal This. Yes. Um, go ahead. T.S. Eliot said, amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. So we do a, we end with a little segment about um, anything you've and actually we'll start with, uh, anything you've come across lately that you would like to take and make your own. Mm. Um, and I'll I'll start with um, I'm actually going to start with with only the strong because um, I love I mentioned this earlier but I love I mean well I love so many things I, I just thought as you went the characters are are amazing and you just do such a great job with with those characters and um and then um but but in particular that that thing about cutting back and forth um and holding the tension in that way um i'm looking forward to reading your short stories too because i understand they're they're linked short stories so i'm, I'm I, you know i'm, I'm interested i'm very interested in those forms that um that kind of can can go different directions and yet there's a whole i really i really love that i mean um like the brief wondrous life of Oscar Wow is one of my yeah. models, for, especially for this book I'm working on right now, and and just to be able to to do that, and I think that's very uh, kind of um, of this moment where in terms of who we are as as uh, readers, you know, and, and and consumers of story or whatever, you know. So anyway, that's I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I am somewhat ill-prepared for a steal of this. The thing that I am sort of working on is, I have to say, I am, I am attracted to a variety of genre, and I've often felt like, gosh, you know, one, am I organized enough to actually complete, you know, instead of having 17 incomplete projects, which is more likely my style. Um, you got to visualize that. i got to visualize the end, so I'm going to borrow that for the steal yeah. of this. But also the kind of um, permission to move forward or the permission to explore. Because I feel like a lot of times I don't give myself the time to really do that. And I was really struck by what you were saying about wanting to write in a way where you weren't coming out with like a specific statement, but mm -hmm. kind of laying out things and being able to kind of explore and be in them, yeah. uh, in the ideas. So I appreciate yeah. that. 
Um, <laughs> well, okay, it's, it's, it's not something, um, well, I guess it is something that I've read uh, lately, but it's, it's something that I return to a lot. Um, an African-American poet and fiction writer named Henry Dumas, uh, who died in 1968. Mm. Uh, but he, he wrote uh, a number of things, but he had a collection of short stories called Ark of Bones and a collection of poetry called Play Ebony, Play Ivory. Uh, and those books continue to influence me uh, in innumerable ways, probably more than any other writer. I call him my, my patron saint. Mm. Uh, he, 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 I can't even describe it, but he, he incorporates these folk elements uh, really well in a way that sort of anticipates um, Toni Morrison. You know, Toni Morrison's often connected to uh, magical uh, realism mm. of the Latino writers, uh, but she was Henry Dumas's editor. Mm. And I, I think he's a, a heavier influence on her. Uh, he uses all these African American folk elements. He's from Arkansas. There's all this. There's this southern aura mm. around a lot of the work that that he does. And um, I find I find myself thinking of him and his writing uh, fairly consistently. I used to keep a picture of him on my desk. Wow. So <laughs> so I think very highly of of the kind of work he did. And so. Uh, I'm too respectful of him to steal from him, <laughs> but I uh, shamelessly borrow about yes. that. <laughs> That's fantastic. How can our listeners find you and your work? Jabari Asim Writer on Facebook, uh, at Jabari Asim on Twitter. My webpage is called The Real Jabari Asim. Now, is that because there's another Jabari Asim? Well, yes, yeah, someone had purchased the domain name. You know, they do that so that right. you can't get it. Uh, that had happened to me, so that's why I started The Real Jabari Scene. Um, and my books are available wherever books are sold. Oh, wonderful. Well, it is such a complete honor to have you here. And oh, I, it's I a pleasure. so appreciate your time. And, uh, and we'll, we'll let everybody know as your other books keep coming out. Yes. Sounds and, great. Sorry I had to pop out, but thank you. It was a oh, wonderful, thank, wonderful conversation. I appreciate thanks, it. Thanks to both of you. It was great. Yeah. All right. Take, take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.